Kels, how would you go if I gave you a 20,000 piece puzzle and told you that it was made up of 147 different puzzles? Uh... And that the puzzle that I want you to finish is actually missing 70% of its pieces and that there is no box lid to help you. Um... And it's also 90% spy. Well, I think I'd probably struggle to even begin such an immense task. Well, today's guest is a puzzle solver extraordinaire, so maybe she can give us a few tips. Hello and welcome to Supplementary Information, the podcast that refits the pieces of Carver's research. I'm Dr. Nathan Jankowski and I'm recording this from the lands of Darawal Nation. I'm Dr. Kelsey Long and I am recording on Nunawal Country. Today we take a dive into the rubbish tip of the past to get to the bottom of how archaeologists go about piecing together the lives of people from their trash. So most of us are familiar with the idea of what an archaeologist does. Most of us have an image in our heads of a person squatting in a trench, brushing away dirt with a tiny paintbrush, and covering objects and items left behind by people from centuries ago. Think Howard Carter and Mary Leakey, not so much Indiana Jones and Lara Croft. So these items can be fireplaces where meals were once eaten, the remains of the meal themselves, like broken oyster shells, bones, and sometimes even the vessels, pots, cups, and plates that they made, traded, and used for cooking or holding food. More often than not, these objects of material culture are found in pieces, needing a specialist to piece them back together and tell their story. A tough gig when the puzzle you are presented with is missing more than half of its pieces. Uh, so this sort of work takes a lot of looking. It's a little bit like having a whole puzzle that's a blue sky and there's no deviation. <laughs> it's probably a little bit slightly easier than that, but you, don't, you just don't know where you're going. My name's Holly, Holly Jones-Amin, and I am a materials conservator. I work for Melbourne University, uh, where I manage a consultancy laboratory. My CARBA affiliation is Monash University, where I am both a PhD candidate and an associate investigator. So how do archaeologists begin to understand the everyday lives of people living thousands of years ago? And how do they go about putting back together these ancient puzzles? And what sorts of stories can these objects actually tell? We caught up with Holly, whose work focuses on ceramics and has taken her from the Mediterranean to Papua New Guinea. We wanted to ask her about how she got into conservation and the study of ceramics, her work in PNG and the next level puzzle skills she's developed. What made you become interested in the idea of conservation of material culture? Why did you want to do that? Yeah, I think there was a quite a natural inclination. If I look back within my own childhood, I was surrounded by objects and each object had a meaning and a story and each thing was valued, very valued by my mother and by my grandmother. And so we didn't have the sort of things you buy as a tourist. We had things that might have belonged to somebody before us within, within our family. And also I had a great aunt that studied archaeology in, in the United Kingdom. And when I went to university and I needed to pick a fourth subject, I went, oh, I'm going to do archaeology. And then I just loved it. I loved it above all the other subjects that I chose. And during the time that I was studying, I heard about this thing called conservation. You know, the conservator did this or had to go to a conservator. And I was like, well, that sounds really interesting. I had a background with hand skills. I honour the privilege of getting close to things and seeing things really close up. So Holly is a conservator. This makes her a specialist at recovering, stabilising, cleaning and preserving cultural materials from archaeological sites. 
Having spent so long in the ground, these items are often fragile because the natural processes occurring in the soil degrade and destroy their structural integrity. Conservators like Holly then enable these objects to be preserved for their lifetime above ground, either for display at a museum or for returning to the local community. And that's what I get to do as a conservator. And interestingly or oddly, when I was a child, I decided I would clean my mother's porcelain doll and I got cotton buds and saliva and I cleaned her face. And I did it and I hid from the rest of my family. I recollect that I th thought I shouldn't be doing it, but I used a, a technique that conservators use, which is enzymes, which naturally we find in our saliva. So yes, saliva is a recognised conservation tool. However, in our COVID world, this technique is unsurprisingly trending out of fashion. You can check out a link to a news article on our website page for more details. There's also a question here about the likelihood of DNA transfer from the conservator to the object being conserved. And this is something that Holly addresses at the end of our interview. From the Papua New Guinea assemblage, you had over a thousand sherds. A sherd is just a technical term for a piece of broken ceramic. Can you tell us a little bit about what sort of deposit that came out of, what it looked like? And basically, how was this presented to you back in the lab? Because presumably it's full of dirt to begin with. And as a conservator, I'm sure you've got some tricks up your sleeve. The deposit itself was very unusual for me. So I'll, I'll, sort of, I'll take a step back and say that I'd, at this stage, I'd worked on three vessels from this area that had been excavated. And I was keen to work on another vessel. Two of the academics at Monash University said, oh, we've got some pots, here's some boxes. and. Um, I think I had, it wasn't three boxes, I think I had 11 boxes, very large, I don't know, 40, 40 centimetre long boxes um, full of shirts. And so I thought, yeah, there'll be whole pots in it. And my concept of being able to reconstruct a vessel comes from working in Italy and then in Syria, where I had whole vessels that I could reconstruct and sites that were rooms that had been excavated. This came from a one by one square metre I think 92 centimetres deep and it had cultural material from the almost the top to the bottom but the ceramic deposit and the stone tools and shells were found pretty much in the middle of it and really at what they call a dense horizon and probably a pottery midden. You say that the the vast majority of these ceramics came from a very dense layer that you've called a midden. What is a midden just in general terms and how are these things sort of put together? I guess we'd call it, you know, it, it's sort of what we'd modern day would say trash. You know, it's what you're disposing of. But it's, it, it can, it's can be a whole lot more beautiful than that because at times different groups will deposit things purposefully within it. So it's a deposit that's made up over time by depositing what people do or don't want in the same location. So um, a dense amount of pottery in the middle with not much in between, all sort of wedged on top of each other. So sometimes you'd find there'd be soil and things or sediment sitting between it, but this was all packed together. Above it, there was cracks in the clay and below it, there was um, bioturbation, which is when animals are moving through um, the earth and making holes. And so some of the pottery had moved up and down. So the pottery was found um, over, I think it was something like 26 centimetres. Yeah, so 26 centimetres with over 18,000 sherds 
And of those 18,000 students, 1,318, if I've got the number right, was um, students that were greater than three centimetres. So everything else was smaller. Before I got it, it had been rinsed in Papua New Guinea. And when it had come to Monash University, it had been rinsed again. And so what I was presented with was the 1,300 and something odd shirts. They weren't all over three centimetres. And when I say, th say three centimetres, it it's the greatest dimension. So they're tiny, they're little things to hold. So in the paper that we, we're discussing today, you are effectively putting back together a jigsaw puzzle that has lost most of its pieces and you don't even have a box lid to help you out. How do you actually start in that sort of situation? What, how do you go about actually finding the corner piece that sets you off? The easiest thing is to go for what archaeologists call diagnostic pieces. So the diagnostic pieces in an assemblage will be rims, pieces which have decoration on them. In an assemblage that has handles, it'll include handles. And an assemblage that includes bases, it'll include bases. So you look for all of those things and you start by grouping them in the first place. And then after that, you're grouping, you can group all of the, if you have pieces that are decorated, you group those together. And if you don't have decoration, you're looking for similarities between the fabric. Fabric is a term in ceramics used to describe the clay that forms the vessels and all the bits and pieces that have been added to it called inclusions. With a Papua New Guinean assemblage, you don't have handles typically, and you don't have bases often because they are round-based vessels that are used for cooking. Um, so that means I, I'm missing two parts of the diagnostic part that I'd be looking for typically. But what I did have is I had paddle and anvil constructed pottery that has been made with what's called an anvil on the inside and a paddle on the outside. The anvil can be a round stone or a clay or fired clay ceramic ball, or it could be a fist. And that's placed on the inside of the vessel and a paddle on the outside and it elongates and stretches the ceramic walls upwards. It can be a manufacturing technique that is used from scratch. So a whole vessel can made, be made that way from beginning to end. It can be used as a technique that is a finishing technique only and done on top of a coil made vessel, or it can be used in conjunction. So you can have a pot that's partly made with coil and partly made with paddle and anvil. But what it produces and what assisted me and what, what I consider diagnostic in this assemblage was that it produced indentations which are curved on the interior side of the pot. So I could look at the curvature of those on the inside and that assisted me. But what was marked about the assemblage was what we call inclusions, which are material that might be added or found naturally within the clay. And that is typically things like sand. Sand can include shell and fine bits of pebble-like material. And it's how that looked in the sherds that assisted me. So what I did was, is I initially pulled out all the, the rims. I pulled out anything that was decorated. And then I was looking at everything else and it was over a thousand, almost, I think it was 1,300 and something sherds. I got all of them out and I put a number on every single one of them. Now, typically archaeologists will write the number onto the sherds. With this assemblage, we won't leave anything like that on that because we didn't want to prevent future analysis and mark them in that way. So instead I used a medical tape and on each piece I wrote the find unit association and then I taped that to the corner of each one. So then I laid all of them out with that information and then I started moving them around. So, you know, a simple way to coordinate or think about it 
Um, and what I do naturally is when I put my washing on the line, I put all my socks together and all of my son's socks together. So what I was doing is I was putting all the shoes that look similar together and I did on plastic trays. And then I initially would put all the same unit on one tray with all the labels on. And then shirt by shirt, I'd take one off and go, oh, that looks like that tray. And that one looks like that tray. And then I'd pick up the shirts and I'd look at them and go, oh, does that join or doesn't it join? So it was um, meticulous and time consuming and Actually, I like it. <laughs> and at the same time as doing it, I'd see everything in my world when I become very focused on something starts to look like the object I'm spending time with. And I wasn't spending time with a object. I was spending time with multiple objects, but I didn't know how many. But I started seeing the floor at the university has an um, aggregate appearance to it. And that floor I started looking at and thinking it looked like the, the shirts. And then if I found the joins um, and I was positive that they joined, then I would adhere them together. We've got this midden deposit. It's come to your lab. You've sorted through it. You've started to adhere things together. Well, one, what are you using to stick these things back together with? And on what basis are you making those conjoins? A conjoin means to bring together two pieces of broken pottery that used to sit side by side. By doing this, archaeologists and conservators are able to put together an estimate of the original size, shape, form and decoration of the original vessel. Conservators work within science. We're very particular about what materials we add to any artefact or specimen because it will change it. And also because it itself, the material we add can change, which means its properties can change, which means it can become unsightly or it can become damaging. So I use an adhesive called Paraloid B72, which a lot of archaeologists use as well. It's an acrylic resin. We typically disperse it within a solvent called acetone. So I make it up at two different concentrations. Primarily, I might use it at a 10% concentration and a 40% concentration. So to stick back together a pot, Holly uses a 10% mix to consolidate or strengthen each individual piece and uses the stronger 40% glue mix to tightly stick those pieces back together. And then I adhere and I, I tape it if I can to hold it together. The tape that she uses here is simply to hold together the pieces while the adhesive dries. In some cases where the pot is incredibly fragile, we can't even use the tape because it actually damages the sherds when it's removed. And then I put it into a container so it sits so that the um, gravity assists the join in forming. And then I need to leave it for a day to a week depending on how thick the, the surfaces are. So I can't just go and move on to the next step. In the assemblage that came from the PNG site, there's one pot in particular that you were able to put back together. Can you just walk us through what that pot looked like, how you were able to put it back together, and now what it looks like? It's got a red slip on it. So it's closer to red than to brown and more red than terracotta in colour. It's very thin. The walls of it are between 3.8 uh, and some are even only 2.3. So those measurements are in millimetres, so very, very thin. And it's decorated and it has incised decoration on it that produces bands and curves and circles in a tiered decoration. It's got a tiny little mouth, which is nine centimetres, what we call orifice or opening at the top of it. And pots are often, just often described like a human body, so it's got a mouth a body, a foot. It stood out from the rest of the assemblage because it had very those very thin walls I talked about. The slip was quite different to everything else. And it didn't have the inclusions that I spoke about before. It didn't have very visible material in the structure that I could see. 
and it had the decoration and it also had very distinctive anvil marks on the interior. The shirt breakage was quite interesting, like the actual shape of them. Some of them have got a curved shape and that curved shape is indicative of paddle and anvil manufacture because the breaks, they fall on curves. With pots typically, they're more angular typically, you get sort of sharper triangles and the like in the shapes. It was hard to find all of the pieces. One piece was in the, the site director's office. That's not unusual for a conservator to find something that's quite important to the whole pot is not present. So I got all these little pieces together and it looked like it all came from one pot, but I was missing the biggest of the decorated shirts. And I got that back, which was great, but that often happens like I'm missing some vital link because it's being drawn or photographed or something that's happened to me on sites and all sorts of places. And then I guess I had two main parts to the pot. I had the, the mouth and then I had a decorated part on what you'd call the left-hand side. And then I had this other part that looked like it belonged to the right-hand side. Well, there was nothing to join it to the rim. And the site director at that point suggested that I had a look for it. And it was a piece that's way under three centimetres. It's a small triangle. All the sherds like that were in similar bags of that size, which were hundreds of sherds in two bags that belonged to two different stratigraphic units. So I poured them out and um, I found the piece and I, you know, it's one of those lovely happy moments you get in your career when you find something or discover something and it joined the rest of the vessel together. Uh, so now what it looks like, it's a, what you would describe as a globular pot. So a small orifice, globular in shape, so, you know, little at the top and then comes around at the bottom. It's there's about 30% of it that's present and the rest of it, I'm pretty much sure it's not It's not present. I found other parts that I think joined to the vessel, but I can't be absolutely sure. So you don't, you, you can't say they're definitely there or not because you haven't absolutely got proof. Some of the things that are interesting about it is that the shirts are all a little bit different from each other. So some are quite pristine uh, and some are what we call weathered and weathered means deteriorated through and from deposition. And so those pieces um, are abraded. And so you wouldn't necessarily know that they belong to the same vessel. And it's only by looking at other characteristics that um, make it obvious. So some of the pieces are um, decorated, but highly weathered. And although you might say, oh, well, that must have been easy because they were decorated. They're so highly weathered that it was quite hard to identify that they were decorated at all because all of the red slippers gone and most of the decorations gone. I have a big yearning when I do something like this to try and get everything finished, be really sure. And I partly have that because I know often when I work, no one else is going to bother or it's going to be a long time before someone else does it. So I really want to make sure I've done my absolute best to try and get everything to join. So Holly's done a fantastic job of describing this pot. And if you want to check out a photo, head over to the show transcript. There's a link in the show description. You have been able to recover or reconstruct 30% of, of this given vessel. What is your hunch or inkling as to where the remaining 70% could be? So there's always that possibility it hasn't been excavated. You know, it's possible it's still there. One thing that frustrated me that it was a one by one square, I was like, what about the other pieces? Are they in the surrounding bit? It's possible that it was never deposited altogether. Uh, it's possible that somebody kept part of it. You know, they like the decoration and they might have gifted it, you know, like friendship, you know, like people wear those pendants that have two halves and 
one person has one half and the other, and that's called enchainment. So it's possible that one person had one part and one person had another part. Sometimes on archaeological sites, you find things seemingly purposely buried in two different locations. It's possible that it never came as a whole vessel to this locale at all, because what is probable is that it's an import to the site because it's so utterly different to everything else. And there has been analysis done at the University of Otago, and that indicates that it is very different to everything else, and it indicates that it is a foreign import to the site. So there's a few different options of why we don't have all of it. So the, the pot was excavated in Panji and you've put it back together in Melbourne. So what's happened to the pot since then? With this vessel, it's still here in Australia, but other vessels that are completed get returned to Papua New Guinea. And that's, you know, absolutely necessary. So, so far, three vessels have been returned. That's not an, necessarily an easy task because they are Let's start again. Pottery is not robust. People bring objects back all the time from overseas travels, which are pots which break. <laughs> so things that are new break. Um, archaeological vessels are reformed objects. They are not strong like they once were. So we're talking about a doubly weak thing. So they need to be packed very carefully. You can't put them into cargo. They need to have foam to support them and they need to be hand carried or they need what's called an art courier to help with the transit of them. So large artworks that you cannot get into into a plane in hand luggage have very specialised packing and very specialised art couriers that travel with them. The vessel that I returned last year to Papua New Guinea, that one I had, uh, we made an archival box for with foam and I needed to understand and find out a whole lot of information like how big is the x-ray machine, how big is the overhead compartment, can I get it into the overhead compartment, what's the size between the different planes, can I still get into the overhead compartment. I requested assistant travel in all of the airports I was in so that I could be, I could jump the queue for security and customs. If you were carrying something that was as fragile as a now unbroken thousand year old pot, you'd want to jump the queue too to avoid being bumped and risk breaking the vessel once again. And then there was a handing over when I returned to Papua New Guinea, which was a media, almost a media frenzy. And at the time I didn't understand why it was a media frenzy. Conservatives are often behind the scenes. We make things happen, but we aren't the star of the show. The the exhibition is usually the concepts of the exhibition. And I understood after I'd been in Papua New Guinea for a week and I'd seen their storeroom it's because archaeologists haven't been returning the material and so they were just they were so pleased to have this this material back in the museum and the stories that they could now tell with the materials and also the relationship they have with the archaeologists you know it was sort of it proved how much they trust and respect uh, and the working relationship that the museum and the personnel there have with the Australian archaeologists. That's really cool and I, I really like hearing stories about you know the improvement of archaeological relationships, you know, with materials coming back to, to the communities from which they were collected from. I think that's that's a really valuable thing. I have just a few more questions and they don't really follow on from what we've just been talking about, but, but before you were talking about breakages, and I was just wondering if you could tell the difference between sherds that break before they are deposited in the ground versus those that, you know, may have accidentally been broken during the excavation process. Yeah, it's very different. 
a lot of archaeological environments, with the, when the groundwater moves through, you get um, accretions on the surface. Now, they can be um, thin and milky almost, or like a mud slurry, or they can be hard pustules, almost, you know, like a pimple on the surface, and they can be formed of things like calcite and silica that are far harder than the ceramic itself. So the break edges will be covered at the, at the least just with sediment. Um, or more severely, they can be covered with these encrustations that make it difficult to bring the two pieces together. If something has been broken post-excavation, we don't want those bits to be broken, but actually you can see the breakage and then you can tell another story about its firing. So with this material, when you look at the, the shared breakage, there's, it's like a sandwich. So you've got the colour that's the surface coming a little bit in, the colour that's the interior coming a little bit, and then you've got a core which is darker. For an image of the firing process and its effect on the structure of pottery, check out the show transcript. There's a link in the show description. Now that's because the firing temperature didn't get all the way in. And so you can see that it wasn't, it was fired more on the outside and the inside. And it tells a story that it was fired in a bonfire and it was fired really rapidly and it cooled really rapidly. So rather than the huge ball of flames conjured up by the term bonfire, the fires used for firing these ceramics are much smaller and more manageable open fires. Check out our website for some images of this. And so the more sharp those edges are, the more distinct, the more certain we are that the firing temperature was rapid. And we know that all of the pottery was fired in bonfires because there's never been a kiln discovered in Papua New Guinea and they're still not traditionally used. The maximum you'd ever get in a bonfire is around 1,000 degrees Celsius. It's more typically around 650 to 800 degrees Celsius. And at those temperatures, there's not been a lot of mineral change going on. So back to the art talking about weathering, that means in the deposition environment that it can revert to clay. So after meticulously pouring over this pot for many hours, Holly has become so acquainted with it that she can basically tell its life story. So here it is. Okay, so it, they would have dug the clay. We know from its difference to the rest of the assemblage and from analysis that's been done on the minerals in it that it was came from elsewhere. It would have it has had very little of extra material added to it. So that's the inclusions which is called temper when it's purposefully added. So that's not been added to it. It's been formed using paddle and anvil construction, which I described before and it has a red slip on the outside. A red, red slip is made from, usually from the clay it's made from, but the clay is suspended in water. So it's, it's a, just basically like a dispersion. It's either been, when you, when you put a slip on, you can dip the whole object in or you can pour it on. With this one, it, we think it's on the ex entire exterior, but only goes slightly onto the interior of the vessel and there's some drip lines. And we know that just from that tiny rim actually that's on the top of it. Before they put the slip on, they smooth the surface of the clay. There's, you can see little tiny, slightly, you know, hardly perceivable, but little drag lines on the surface. So you can see that. When they did the incision on it, they did that after they put the slip on. Often it's done beforehand. We can see that because when you look at under the microscope, you can't see the slip inside the decoration. And the other thing that's interesting about the decoration is that it was done when it was quite hard. We can tell that because where they've incised and taken bits of clay out, the edges are ragged, which means the clay was dry, where if it had been done when it was softer, more you know earlier on in the drying process, you wouldn't have had those ragged edges. 
It's possible that that was filled with a lime in a field because that's quite typical of decoration in this region, but we haven't we have not uh, located that, but that's probably because of the deterioration and the weathering underground. In terms of its deposition history, it was found in 17 separate pieces that were found through the conjoining process. There's another 26 sherds that we think are related to it, but they don't join on. And we spoke before about how did it get there? It's all conjecture, except that we know that it's most likely that what we have was deposited in one go. It sat underground for over a thousand years, and then it was excavated by an Australian team of archeologists who were working in Papua New Guinea for, I don't know, about a year, I think. It then was sorted by another team back in Australia under quarantine conditions and, you know, controlled environment. Then I came along as a conservator, so I added to the history forevermore. And then it's all been gone into storage until it goes on display. So the most it was ever handled would be conservation, by far. So the manufacturer would have been fast compared to the conservation, because conservation is a very time-consuming process when you consider that you're trying to clean every shirt. And I think that runs through the life history of the object. Typically, life histories are called object biographies, and they often finish before conservation. But in terms of a science world, a conservator changes things. And so we have to be considered as being part of it. And we don't know, we never know the future story of an object. We don't know um, when I do conservation, I don't know what's going to happen when I work on something that's archaeological because it's I'm not looking after it. it's going back to the community it comes from. I don't know if it's going to go be displayed elsewhere. So I have to always think about making my conservation repairs strong enough to be handled. And the whole purpose of the conservation is so that one, when you conserve a pot, is that you can handle it for the other documentation process that archaeologists want to put it through. But to the community, the source community, it's probably display. But going back to the science idea, there's a whole lot of things right now that we don't know what we can tell, you know. So Theoretically, in the future, my DNA will probably be on it. <laughs> but what other DNA can we get off it? The final question then for you today, what do you think the most exciting question is yet to be answered either in Australia or more broadly? And what do you think stopping us from actually getting to that answer at the moment? Such a big question. Actually, I think for me, maybe if I just talk about what I just talked about, I think it's probably micro DNA from things. From in terms of me working in the museum world, I just think, I think one day we'll be able to tell who turned the page of a book. I just think that would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, what stops us now? Well, uh, technology, um, accessibility of that material and acceptance that we could do it. So at the moment within the museum world, we're not used to cutting things out of objects, but then we have techniques now, uh, you know, that 10 years ago we didn't have that we can actually just put on the surface of the object that's not destructive. So what's to say we can't do that one day? Holly Jones, I mean, thank you very much for being with us here on Supplementary Information today. We do appreciate it. My pleasure. So what do you think of that? I think that was incredible. I just find it absolutely amazing that you can actually, I don't know where, to, where I'd even start. You know, all of those pieces and she was able to actually get something out of it to actually reconstruct the pot is absolutely amazing. And not only that, be able to tell its story. Yeah, and she sounded disappointed that she wasn't able to get more pots from these thousands of pieces. Like I would be impressed to get even one and it's just pretty brilliant. I also think that uh, there's quite a positive story at the end of that about 
how a lot of these pots go into museums and displays, but a lot of them return back to where they were excavated from. So communities can display them and control their history from now into the future. And I also quite like Holly's approach to her role in the story of the pot. So sitting within science, she, she sees herself as a part in this process. And so documenting down exactly what she does and how that's influencing the pot actually gives us that. It's the next step because, you know, this pot's probably gonna outlast us. And so it's nice that that sort of work is being done. It's the final piece in the puzzle. So do you think you're ready to, to tackle our 20,000 piece puzzle yet? I think I might just take up something else like knitting or gardening or, you know, heavy labor <laughs> and leave the puzzling to the experts. Good plan. <laughs> So that was episode three. Was there anything in there that made you stop and think, hmm, I wonder? Well, Kelsey and I would love to know exactly what it is that you've been wondering. You can do that here in our reviewer comment section. To send us your question, you can use our Twitter handle at subinfopod and simply tweet us your questions or follow the links in the episode description to the Epic Australia website. Click on the episode that you're interested in and at the bottom of the page, there's a link to our survey. Just click the link, follow the prompts, job done. Just a reminder, we have some really cool SupInfo merchandise ready to go out to those people whose questions feature in our podcast. So go on, put your thinking caps on and send your questions our way. We can't wait to hear from you. The Carbar team recognises that all our activities take place on Indigenous land. We acknowledge that Australia is an exceptional country with a unique cultural heritage and biodiversity that has been under the care of Indigenous Australians for millennia. This is Aboriginal land, always was, always will be. And we thank all those communities who partner with us in our research. For more information about Holly jones Amin and her conservation work, check out the links to her socials in the episode description. While you're there, you can click on the link to epicaustralia.org to check out other Carver research stories, as well as a transcript of today's episode and all of those images that we've been talking about. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to supplementary information wherever you get your favourite podcasts. In our next episode, better pack your togs because we're off for a fresh fish feast on the Great Barrier Reef and talking 10,000 years of fishing industry. So it's cheerio from me. And goodbye from me. And until you download us again, stay safe. Bye. Bye. <laughs>